do five, 10, even more if you can, of the exact same test, go back home, calculate your CDVA value for every single test, and you'll be able to see what your, stunt, your variance is like. And anything outside of that, you can probably believe is a true improvement. Anything within that variance is within a wash, effectively. The Triathlon Show 229. Up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dan Bigham, who is a multiple British champion in both time trialing and track cycling. He's a member of the Hoob What Bike track team, and he works as an aerodynamics consultant who, among other merits, recently helped the Danish track team beat the team pursuit world record. Dan also owns his own business watchup that uh, produces a certain aerodynamic components for bikes and uh, and retails uh, certain other components as well and we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll get into the interview with Dan on aerodynamics uh, testing, testing protocols on bike aerodynamic sensors, bike fitting and equipment upgrades and so on right after thanking our sponsors. First, we have precision hydration. Everybody loses sodium in their sweat at individual concentrations. So somebody might have a very low concentration of sodium, whereas another person has a high concentration, which means that uh, even for the same amount of sweat, the sodium losses will be different, which over the course of a long race can add up to quite a substantial, uh, a substantial difference, which can lead to performance decrements if you don't adequately replace that sodium. And uh, this is uh, exacerbated if you have a high sweat rate in addition to that high sodium concentration. Uh, so go to Precision Hydration and take their free online sweat test and that will give you a ballpark estimate for how much you sweat and how much sodium you lose so that you can tailor your race hydration strategy to those numbers. You can find them on precisionhydration.com and you can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka. Roka is the world-leading manufacturer of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, including prescription sunglasses and eyeglasses. They are used by some of the world's best athletes and triathletes, including athletes like uh, Katie Zafiris, Flora Duffy, Lucy Charles, and so on. You can find them on roca.com and you can get a 20% discount code valid for your entire order on the page roca.com forward slash TTS. Without any further ado, here's my interview with Dan Bigham. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. And uh, thanks for having me on. It's uh, a pleasure. Uh, why don't you take a minute or two to tell the listeners about yourself, your background, and uh, uh, why you're here, essentially? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... My sporting background and academic background kind of link in quite heavily. Uh, I used to be a triathlete. I couldn't really swim all that quick or to be honest, probably couldn't run all that fast either. Uh, cycling was definitely my strong point. And uh, about 
five years ago, I transitioned onto uh, the road and did road cycling and time trialing. And then in just about three years ago, uh, started racing on the track and set my own track cycling team up. Uh, we race at World Cup level and have won World Cups. And our ambition this year is to, to break the team pursuit and individual pursuit in the hour world record altitude. So pretty uh, ambitious goals. Uh, my own background, I studied motorsport engineering, both undergrad and master's. Uh, I've worked in Formula One uh, for Mercedes AMG Patronus as an aerodynamicist. I've also worked in Olympic sport for British Athletics and a number of other teams. Uh, and currently also work for the Danish uh, Cycle Union, uh, mostly around track, team suit, uh, points race and all the other bunch of stuff. Yeah, and uh, the Danish team just recently set uh, set a new re- world record on the track. Can you talk us through a little bit about that, uh, how that came about? Was it a surprise and sort of what has been your role with the team? Um, I I don't think it was a surprise they broke the world record. Uh, I know that sounds quite confident, but I, I knew what they, well, we'd seen what they'd done, obviously, in the World Cup series, and they weren't a million miles off, only sort of half a second or so off breaking the world record anyway. And with the preparation, the improvements we made from the World Cup season towards uh, the World Champs, that was definitely on the cards to do that. Uh, but to break it by so much was uh, very scary and also makes my life a lot harder when I take my trade team up to altitude to try and break that record. Uh, yeah, my role with, with the Danish team, it started back... Uh, what was the first week of November actually the contract uh, started the day that we no longer competed against each other on the World Cup scene so that we could uh, be completely honest and candid with each other uh, and yeah I've just worked on everything I guess on the energy outside the equation whether it's equipment development aerodynamic positioning um, race analysis training analysis uh, modeling and predictions is pretty much anything that uh, isn't on the physiology side really yeah and your own team is uh, who what bike uh, can you talk a little bit more about the the background and genesis of of that team and and also kind of where do you guys stand in terms of the uh, the federation the the cycling federation and sort of even thinking about olympic selection and that that sort of thing Sure. So we started back in uh, December 2016, January 2017. We went to our national championships off the back of effectively four weeks of training. Uh, we took first and second in the individual pursuit and broke the competition record. Uh, I won the kilo as well. And then we went to the team pursuit on the final day, qualified fastest. Uh, we won uh, in the final against the British Senior Academy and broke the competition record there as well. So it's pretty successful. Uh, and then off the back of it, we just sort of grown and grown and stepped up we've gone on to, to race world cups and race the commonwealth games the european championships and and the world championships albeit as individuals in that case uh we effectively just sit outside of the, the national governing program we we aren't a part of or involved with british cycling um it's a bit of a an interesting relationship an interesting dynamic where they have their riders and we have ours and we go to the world cups and Twice, most of the time we we've beaten them. Uh, it's been I think about sixty percent, seventy percent of the time we finish ahead. Um, but yeah, then they're, they're not so much interested in in what we do, how we do it, or even our riders, which is quite a frustration for us um, for a number of reasons, obviously. So uh, uh, it ends up yeah as being this sort of us and them relationship, which is a shame for cycling in Britain because if you brought us both together, then there could be something pretty pretty outrageous. But uh, we are where we are, so we're just trying to achieve everything that we can outside of uh, the system. Uh, unfortunately, with the the UCI, the world governing body, they're, they're changing the, the track cycling calendar post-Tokyo, 
which effectively eliminates us. We won't be able to compete as trade teams at the highest level. It will become a Nations Cup rather than the World Cup, uh, which in short brings about the end of Who Bought Bike, which is incredibly frustrating. Um, but there's not much we can do about it. We've lobbied against it, but they seem pretty stuck in their ways to, to carry on in that way. Oh, really? Yeah, I had no idea about that. I, I knew a bit about the the British cycling stance on your team, although I don't know the reasons for it, but that that alone must be incredibly frustrating. But the, the calendar change and sort of setup change with competitions, I, I had no idea. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, definitely like uh, really frustrating as you as you say and uh, so let's maybe leave that uh, as a sad, sad note and move on to to the main topics for today and talk about uh, sort of things related to aerodynamics and getting faster on the on the bike and although the track is now where you have your main focus let's uh, perhaps take a more of a time trial triathlon even potentially road cycling perspective because we do have a lot of those listeners as well that are pure cyclists but uh, the first topic that I wanted to get into is regarding testing. So can you tell us about the different methods that you find beneficial, whether it's wind tunnel testing, velodrome testing, or even the new on-bike sensors and or any custom protocols or Chang methods or similar that you might be using? Sure. So I started back at university with playing about with the Chang method. found it incredibly interesting. And obviously, as an engineer, you're sort of thinking, okay, well, this is great. It can do X, Y, and Z. What are the limitations? How can you improve it? Um, how can you either better measure variables or remove certain variables that you can't control? Uh, so it was, yeah, not always an interesting thing. And I was quite lucky with one of my lecturers. Uh, he was a high-level cyclist, his GB cyclocross rider, and was very keen to allow me to tweak my most sport modules to be a bit more cycle sport related. <clears throat> so I was very lucky that I could turn the head on my lap time simulation module to become effectively a, a cycling simulator and from that you can effectively model the performance of an athlete over a given course and when you flip that the other way around you can then um, from a given performance analyze and understand all the the important met metrics and variables and obviously the big ones coefficient drag times frontal area from a performance and a performance could be a race the time trial up and down a road could be riding and riding around laps on a closed circuit it could even be on a velodrome um the physics are all all the same it's just picking the right location and uh the right things to measure when you're you're out there testing and what you want to be looking at so uh to sort of fast forward a little bit both on the our road team i ride for a uci continental team ribble pro cycle now we're ribble well type pro cycling even uh we do quite a bit both in the real world and on the velodrome and in the wind tunnel. Uh, and then obviously with who, what bike, we do a huge amount of, of all three. Uh, well, obviously, oh, sorry, not all three. It's uh, wind tunnel and velodrome. So we really find benefit in each of them for different reasons. So I think the first thing to say is that you want to understand and measure and be able to see whatever changes or improvements that you're you're chasing you want to see them in the scenario in which you race so for us on the track obviously we're racing in the velodrome we're not racing in the wind tunnel so what you may be able to see in the wind tunnel if you can't replicate on the track then um it's relatively pointless you may find you can find 50 watts in the wind tunnel but if you if you do the exact same test on the track and don't get the same answer then uh, that's 
not so useful. Uh, so we do a huge amount on the velodrome, but we use No Show Connect, which is obviously one of the on-bike sensors that, that you've mentioned. Um, effectively, what that does is do two things. It allows us to measure certain variables that we otherwise couldn't, such as airspeed or using the inertial measurement u- unit in there. We can get accelerometry and gyro data in three axes, so we can imply, for example, uh, tire loads throughout the banking or um, lateral tire loads so we can look at scrub or the the roll angle of the bikes therefore you can better calculate the center of mass velocity which are all sort of variables that matter for really accounting for every aspect of where your energy is going every single second uh, and the second thing that it does is just logs at a higher rate so your typical head unit that you use for something like the chung method so a wahoo or a garmin that logs at one hertz so you're getting one data packet every single second However, all of your sensors are sending out much more data packets, but the head unit is just not recording them. It's just rejecting them. However, what the No-Show Connect does, and uh, there are other sensors out there that do the exact same thing, and even um, Garmin's Alpha Mantis system, that does the exact same thing. It takes the higher rate, so it takes at 4 hertz, so through Garmin main power rather than, uh, sorry, uh, through basic power, and you just get more data packets to deal with. You can actually see in a a lot more detail what's happening when the the riders on the bike, what power they're putting out, their speed, etc. because you're just sampling at a higher rate. So that's really useful, uh, whether you're in the real world or on the velodrome. Uh, so every single track session that we do, every single bike is censored up. We have a power meter. We jump between SRM track science and the InfraCrank track. Um, some are better, one's better than the other for some things, so we can get a very high rate out of the InfraCrank, uh, but it's not so great for racing on because it's aerodynamically pretty poor. Uh, but you can get some pretty interesting things out of it. Uh, so, yeah, every single effort, every single session is logged. Uh, we then analyze the data ourselves. So we get uh, bespoke graphs for every single effort we do, which I think the guys in general find very useful for them to really dig into their performance and to obviously understand the aerodynamics. So how you're riding on the front uh, in a team pursuit can change pretty drastically depending on anything from obviously the equipment you use, but even down to fatigue or the gear that you're running and being able to really pull that apart is incredibly useful for us. And it's probably one of the major reasons that I think we've got fast quite quickly. Uh, but also, yeah, we've used the wind tunnel. We're really, really lucky. Last year we had uh, the support of the Boardman Performance Centre, which is obviously leading the way domestically on the, the wind tunnel testing front. And then uh, just in the last 12 months, we've got the support of the Silverstone Sports and Engineering Club through Vortec, who develop our skin suits. So we've been in their tunnel quite a bit, mostly skin suit related testing. Uh, the main advantage there is if you can you can fix the rider effectively in a position, whether that position is what they ride in or not, is a, obviously a point of contention. <clears throat> but you can vary the wind speed significantly more than you ever could on the track. The ability to ride at... 66, 67k an hour is pretty limited on the velodrome to quite short durations, whereas in the wind tunnel, you can do quite long samples at that, which is very, very helpful. Um, but also the sensitivity is much greater, so you've got a much bigger load cell uh, force balance underneath the rider, whereas your equivalent load cell on the bike is the strain gauges that are located in your power meter. So uh, you can get much greater sensitivity and resolution in the wind tunnel. Um, but yeah, the, the limitations of that are that the, the air that you're getting is not the same as if you were riding through um, static air on the velodrome or even out there in the real world, but the conditions are, are somewhat different. Um, but you can make, um, you can you can account for that in, in some ways and start to understand the limitations of it. So certain things that <coughs> we definitely do look at in the wind tunnel and certain things that, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> 
we try to avoid. So uh, we've actually uh, drifted away from doing testing on helmets and front end positions so much in the wind tunnel because we don't find the correlation with the track to be all that great. Um, whereas things like skin suits, we get very good correlation between the wind tunnel and the track. So it's, yeah, horses for courses uh, and looking at different things there. Whereas, yeah, going back to the on-bike sensors in the real world, it's been really, really useful actually for analytics of what's happening in time trial races and what an athlete actually does. So you can quite easily get them to, to go out and do some tests uh, with NoShow Connect or with your Aeropod or whatever other sensor you might be using. So go and do laps of um, an open circuit somewhere out in the countryside where it's a bit quieter, see what the CDA values that they can hold with for four or five minutes, even 10 minutes, and then put them in a race scenario where suddenly they've got to ride at their absolute maximum for 20 minutes or even an hour, then things change pretty quickly. And it's quite an interesting one for diagnosing the reasons behind that and then aiming your training or your testing, uh, even down to like your S&C work into certain directions to understand uh, and obviously improve whatever is causing you to, to not perform on race day. So you might get a set CDA value that you can hold for five minutes, but then suddenly uh, in a 25-mile time trial, the, the final five minutes, you're you're grinding it out in a low gear, your head's come up, you're wobbling all over the saddle, and um, without measuring it, you won't be able to know that, and therefore you can't improve it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that sounds like a re- really useful, uh, useful course for, for having those sensors. And uh, yeah, I want to come back to them a little bit, but first, when you do testing, uh, let's say on the velodrome, for example, uh, so you mentioned everything is measured in all your sessions. So in, in in a way for you, the old adage of testing is training and testing is training holds true in that regard as well. But I imagine that you maybe have some certain sessions where you, which are focused on figuring out a specific maybe piece of equipment or a different position, like a different head position perhaps. How do you then make sure that the measurements that you get out from a testing session that they are valid and they are actionable let's say you want to just simply try two different head positions or head or hand configurations do you do a lot of different rounds to try to repeat that and get take some sort of average and standard deviation or what's the more detailed nuances of the protocol uh so yeah we do a number of different things really uh the first one is yes we absolutely do uh individual area testing where we separate out from training as much as it's it's useful to do it in session. Uh, your quality of data does, definitely does drop off when you're not focusing on the smaller details that do matter. So if you can go into an individual session quite fresh and prepared with a quiet track, uh, no distractions, then you tend to get much better data quality out and you can trust your results a lot more. When we're calculating the CDA from a test run, uh, we do it in multiple different ways as well to try and effectively isolate if there's other error sources coming in. So we would always account for airspeed and then also not account for airspeed. So we have CDA and apparent CDA. We do uh, accounting for and not accounting for acceleration. So if you were to decelerate or accelerate throughout a run, there's obviously a net change in kinetic energy. And that can have a noticeable effect on how you calculate CDA, especially on shorter runs. So if you were trying to hit sort of close to individual pursuit or team pursuit speed, you can only do runs in the region around one kilometer to two kilometers long. So uh, a small change in velocity can be quite a, a significant change in kinetic energy that's stored or released, and therefore that can impact on your CDA. So when you account for or don't account for airspeed and account for or don't account for accelerations, you've got four different types of CDA. Uh, and then you can start looking at whether you take you calculate CDA on a 
quarter second basis? Do you calculate on a half lap basis? Do you calculate over the whole run? Uh, you can end up with um, some different results as well that way. So we try to do it in multiple different ways, uh, as well as doing back-to-back repeats. So you may do, if you're just looking at one change, you may do A, B, B, A. Um, you can end up with multiple changes. So we might go through and test, for example, six or seven different things. And then the ones that show promise, we'll do repeats of at the end of the session, which tends to be quite an efficient way of getting through through larger changes. Um, but to be honest with where we are in our positions now, it is quite smaller stuff that we're looking at. Uh, the big one, though, as I mentioned previously, is to try and hit race speed, individual pursuit to team pursuit speed. How a skin suit performs is drastically different at 50k an hour to 55 to 60 to 65k an hour. So we absolutely need to be as close as we can to that race velocity to ensure that we're getting the correct flow structures around the rider so that when they change their head position, change their arm position, change their stack height, saddle, whatever else, we're not effectively uh, developing around uh, a flow structure that we wouldn't actually experience in a race scenario. And yeah, I think that's actually something that a lot of people should do irrespective. So looking at what speed you actually race at and try to test at that speed. And, and that's where triathletes have a huge advantage over track cyclists because the speeds that we race at are much more sustainable uh, for a longer period, obviously. So so that perhaps makes it possible to even do more more runs if if the, if there needs to be more runs than to uh, make a distinction between two different configurations. Do you have any sort of like do you calculate errors? Is that sort of inherent in the protocols you use? And uh, or how should the average user, if they want to try two different configurations of whatever, how should they think about taking the errors into account? Is there a simple way to think about that, or do you really have to go into the statistics and the mathematics to to get that figured out? So there is a simple way, uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the, so the way we go about it, we look at uh, everything on a half lap basis over the whole run so if you did a, let's say 10 laps uh you've got 20 different half lap cda values and then you can look at the, the standard deviation the coefficient of variance of that and also the standard error and it's something the guys have got sort of more of a handle on now they've they've looked at months and months and months of error tests and and race numbers and looking at effectively smooth application of power but also seeing how variable your CDA is. If you have high coefficient of variance, then it's likely that you're either quite unstable or could be quite fatigued or not thinking about the things that you need to be thinking about in an aero test, such as holding the correct head position or um, riding the right line. They're, they're all things we try to account for, uh, but inevitably they all have an impact on, on the end result. For somebody who probably doesn't have the time or the background in statistics to really look at it, the best way of doing it, I've found, is to do a whole session of repeating the exact same test. So go out there, and it can be a little bit boring at first, but I promise you it's, it's totally worthwhile. Do 5, 10, even more if you can, of the exact same test. Go back home, calculate your CDVA value for every single test, and you'll be able to see what your, your variance is like. And anything outside of that, you can probably believe is a true improvement. Anything within that variance is within a wash, effectively, uh, which is quite a simple way of knowing whether it's, it is a significant improvement for you or whether you need to work on holding a more consistent position or finding a way of improving your testing, whether it's a better circuit, whether it's um, doing longer test runs, whatever it might be. Uh, if you can improve, effectively, your consistency, your stability, then you can uh pull apart smaller and smaller improvements yeah that's uh that's good advice and let's get back to the sensors the on-bike sensors what's your take on them and uh, from the lens of 
uh, amateur athletes is is it something that is more of a luxury for really high level athletes like you and the guys on the team or is it something that you actually think that uh, the average age group triathlete or cyclist can actually benefit significantly from it's a good question uh, and i've been asked it a few times and i think it's the direction we're going in that it probably will be a benefit for more age group level triathletes in the the coming years or so and maybe those who adopt it earlier and are willing to commit to learning and understanding it will will find bigger benefits and obviously improve quicker than the competition but it's not an easy thing to to sort of get your head around straight away it's not quite so intuitive as say a power meter where effectively they're measuring two two variables they're measuring torque and angular velocity and giving you power and it's taken us nigh on 20 years to get to the point where they're they're wholeheartedly adopted by the sport and understood so when suddenly instead of measuring two variables you're measuring 20 and trying to really pull those apart and understand exactly how they they interact with each other it's it's definitely going to end up with a much harder tool to utilize and get something useful out of uh, and obviously the cost is not cheap you're talking nearly a thousand pounds for a sensor like that so um, i think the way it will probably go is more high-end athletes or those who have a keen interest in the technology and in the application of science will probably engage with it and then engage with people like myself or AeroCoach or Matt Botchell or Drag to Zero, whoever it might be, who are keen and understand the aerodynamics but probably aren't able to scale their time massively to, to test everybody in the market can then effectively help people remotely uh, in a bit more of an ad hoc basis of guiding them of okay look at this this and this or you should probably try and find a different test area or looking at your biking equipment it might be wise for you to looking at testing different helmets or testing different extensions or wheels or tires or saddles just to effectively fast track the process rather than leaving it up to, to joe blogs on the street to understand where they should go and look and it's something no show no and they're really working on they call it effectively uh, artificial intelligence of where they, where people should go by you answer a load of questions of where you are now and it suggests the direction in which you should try and test going forward uh, but on the other hand they still accept that it's going to come down to people who have that experience already to try and help people along um, so in answer i think it will start to become more commonplace but it's not going to be uh, your next day power meter in the next few years yeah makes sense Let's move on to the next topic, which is uh, bike fit and uh, the impact of bike fit on aerodynamics primarily, but uh, but also, well, feel free to weave in everything. The, of course, we, we can't just ignore things like power production and, and comfort. Uh, maybe you can to some extent ignore comfort actually on the on the track, but uh, but considering we have a lot of uh, triathletes and uh, time trial cyclists, then comfort definitely needs to play a role. So, so can you elaborate on your thoughts on, on bike fits? Sure. Uh, I think personally, there's more of a, an optimal window where, from a biomechanical perspective, athletes can sit. And it's a hard one because you need to strike the balance. Effectively, when you look at it, what matters for time trialists and triathletes and, and track riders is what's to CDA. So just like everyone climbing up Mont Ventoux or Alpe de Zwift, um, what's per kilo matter, which is great. You're going up a hill. That's That's the important metric. For everyone who's riding on a flat, fast course, watts to CDA is what, what matters. So you can either increase your, your watts through a good, efficient biomechanical fit, or you can decrease your aerodynamic drag and end up with the same scenario. Um, the big thing that I've always pointed out is that your aerodynamics don't adapt to a stimulus, whereas your physiology would. So just because you ride along 
at 50k an hour all the time doesn't mean you're going to get any more aerodynamic. However, if you have a position that maybe compromises your power to start with over time, your body will work to adapt that and to improve and to effectively recover that that loss or at least to a certain extent mitigate it. So I think you can take some hits, for want of a better phrase, uh, when you're trying to to strike that watts to CDA ratio as high as you can. Uh, from a bike fit perspective, what I try to advise everybody to do is to get a good bike fit prior to any aerodynamic testing to get your saddle absolutely dialed in to a, a good level where you're comfortable and you know, okay, I can't go any lower than this. I probably shouldn't go any higher than that. If I go forward or backward, it feels uncomfortable. It's unstable, etc. Make sure your cleats are set to a good level that they match or if they're not matching, they're not matching for the, the right reasons um, and get get your front end comfortable but in a position where you know okay i can come in i can come out i can go up and go down and find that that window and find the limits of of where you can move to because that's going to heavily influence how you test and what you're going to look at of okay well you might have gone to a bike fit and accepted that that is your saddle height and if you go up or you go down it's intolerable from a pain perspective or a comfort perspective or your power completely drops um through the floor so then you know well actually there's no point me testing with my saddle because no amount of training is going to recover a, a 30 watt deficit or something like that. However, at the front end, you might find that you have huge room for going up on your stack or down on your stack or stretching out if you've got good shoulder flexibility or whatever it might be. You want to figure out where those limits lie and then you can really start to work to optimize because all of these changes that you'll make will interact quite heavily with each other. So, for example, you could do a test where you raise your stack height 10, 20, 30, 40 mil you find your optimal, but actually then you've got to go back through a lot of the other tests that you may have done previously. So you might then have to retest uh, extension angle or or reach or arm pad width or even saddle setback or uh, height. And then all of those will start to interact. And it, it's quite frustrating, but also quite nice in a way that when you find an improvement, uh, you may have to revisit something and find even more gains or sometimes the the complete opposite is true that you might have to take a loss somewhere to find a gain elsewhere and it's often hard to understand where that might come from but unfortunately it's very multifactorial and to know uh, the direction you're going often just comes from experience of having done it with a lot of other people what's the what are the practical steps to to going through the process so uh, you said that we we need to start with actually getting a good bike fit and before doing aero testing and that makes sense to me but uh, let's say you get that good bike fit and then you get some baseline aero testing done in some fashion and then you want to see how you can improve that do you sort of try to tinker on your own or do you go and see the same bike fitter again or should you ideally do the the aero testing with somebody who can help you with the tinkering while doing the testing or what's your take on that hmm. yeah i think sometimes bike fit is an aerodynamicist crossover uh some identify as one or the other some of both and some can definitely help on both um i think quite often people who have experience in the aerodynamic side might not be so well versed in bike fit or vice versa so it's, it's hard to uh to really say yes just go to this kind of person and they'll answer all your questions so sometimes yeah you need to seek out a specialist who can help you in that area and at least in the uk there's there's quite a few and i think that's growing especially in europe um i don't know too much over on the us side what that's like but um, finding someone who can help on the aerodynamics will accelerate your improvement process so much more so just 
shortcutting all those lessons that you have to learn at the start around even down to yeah selecting the right course or how you test the protocols all that kind of stuff if you can get that information straight off the bat and not have to go through a learning process then uh, you're straight into the point of making improvements rather than actually just the understanding of the process so i think that that's kind of quite an important one um, but I think also, yeah, just having another pair of hands when you do go testing, whether it's on the velodrome, whether it's outdoor, whether it's at the wind tunnel, having another pair of hands, another set of eyes that can see what you're doing and to be critical and objective in how you do it definitely helps out. It's something we've always pushed on that as much as you want to test by yourself in the track team and test a load of different things, to have someone else trackside just looking at how your body responds, how you respond to that, they can pick up a whole lot more than you ever can because you're focusing on riding your bike. You're not focusing on looking at yourself and how you hold your head position or whether you have your pelvic rocks or whatever it might be. So another pair of, of eyes and ears and hands is, is a huge help. Uh, I definitely agree even more so obviously if they're, they're sort of pretty experienced in it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, makes sense. Uh, about equipment. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what equipment upgrades or equipment choices that uh, can help us ride faster, get more aerodynamic, and and so on. So, uh, yeah, you can start in whatever uh, whatever end of the list you you want. But well, perhaps we we start with the kind of the most uh, most CDA for pounds or for dollars for money simply uh, ratio. And uh, what are the most important upgrades? And then we w- work our way down that list. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good way of putting it: pounds per watt or dollars per watt, whatever you're. you're your going rate is and just i think once you can kind of set a threshold of what you're happy to spend per watt then it's quite easy to to cherry pick the right things um i think historically a lot of people have looked in the wrong region of buying well super expensive carbon frames or ceramic uh bottom brackets whatever it might be and when you look at it at the, the ratio of pounds per watt is pretty terrible uh so a lot of the things actually are, are quite simple and quite cheap so things like i uh, we, we talked about my the what's it worth article that i put together and uh, we'll be updating that things like covering your shoes up so overshoes and aero socks are probably one of the biggest gains out there that you look at um well pretty much every clothing manufacturer has their own version out now and actually when you look at it from an aero perspective some are better at low speed middle speed high speed uh but a pair of aero socks can cost you 20 30 pounds and can save you anything up to, to 10 watts at some fast speed. So I think on the pounds per watt scale, it's it's absolutely um, right up there at the top. Uh, and then other things that are quite cheap, drivetrain and tires. So watch chains, again, lots of people sell them, but it's, it's super easy for, for people to do. And there's a lot of how-to videos out there on YouTube and it's clean, uh, it's it's dry, uh, it's super easy to do once you've you sort of got yourself set up um and it's it's free watts as well so i think that's kind of a big win on on the drivetrain front uh and tires a lot of people quite quite quickly puncture protect themselves out of, out of race results and i remember reading uh, an article a few years back on how some pro triathletes were putting on gator skins because they kept puncturing whereas actually if you look at the mass of putting a faster tire on you'd be that far ahead by the time you punk if you punctured that you'd have enough time to to change your energy or fix your puncture or whatever it might be that tires make a, a huge difference and it's something that i'm focusing on a huge amount at the moment especially because uh the track season's come to an end and obviously the road season's on the horizon once coronavirus fingers crossed hopefully disappears that i know there's some big gains to be had in 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 rolling resistance so i'm doing a lot of a lot of testing now on different inner tubes and different tires and rim widths and pressures and 
trying to be a bit more inventive and, and look beyond what testing's already been done. But you can find easily 15, 20, even more watts if, if you went from a relatively typical tire like a Schwabi or Trimo or even um, things like a, a Conti GP4000 to some of the faster tires now like um, the, the Schwabi Pro 1 TT or the Vittorio Corsa Speed. They're significantly quicker uh, and even better with tubeless that you, you can pretty much puncture protect yourself um pretty thoroughly without having to worry so much about a loss in in rolling resistance so it's it's kind of win-win really on that so i think tires is one that is often overlooked but definitely one that people should look at uh, and on the aerodynamic side it's definitely position that's is massive and triathletes need to obviously strike a balance they're not just being aero they're not just chasing a what's the cda number they also need to run off the bike so there is a balancing act there of how much um, being aggressive, whatever aggressive might be. It doesn't mean that you're absolutely slammed. It, it could mean that uh, you fatigue your shoulders. It could because you're too tight. It could be that um, your glutes start to to give in at the back end of a run because your saddle's too far slammed back, or whatever it might be. Uh, it's, it can impact on the end result rather than you might be quicker on on the bike, but by the end of the run, it's it's cost you more than you've gained. So it's it's being careful around that and striking the balance. But position is definitely the big win to get to to look at. And in short, look at what a lot of the pros are doing, especially in the time trial world. Uh, domestically in the UK, it's quite nice because you are a lot less limited by the regulations. So we have a different governing body with cycling time trials that. Effectively, mean you can do within reason anything you want on a positional perspective. Whereas you look at UCI time trialists, they're, they're quite confined. Uh, so, without going into detail on the regulations, we're limited on where your saddle can be, where your extensions can be, where your armrests have to be, the difference between your armrests and your extensions, all this kind of stuff that, that means that positions that UCI riders end up in aren't necessarily aerodynamically the quickest. So, I think triathletes to look at. The, the best guys in triathlon world definitely but the best guys in the uk domestic time trial scene are probably some of the most aerodynamic in the world uh, so that's probably where you need to be looking for inspiration on position but i wouldn't say you always copy it's a good starting point but by testing you can really find out what works for you and picking a helmet or a position that you see on the top 10 guys didn't necessarily mean it's going to be fast for yourself and uh, yeah understanding that and going out there and testing for yourself you'll you'll quickly realize that there's a lot of things that work on other people that don't work on you or work on you and don't work on others. So it's, it's horses for courses and that, and you've really got to, got to understand. And I think by extension, like I just mentioned, helmets are so unique. A test fast on one rider is not necessarily going to be quick on, on another. So just getting as many as you can and, and an aero test session will, will quickly uh, find the direction in which you should go. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what about other things that uh, are common upgrades like wheels, for example, and uh, different hydration configurations and so on? Uh, do you want to comment on those? Sure. So wheels is a super interesting one. Uh, the fastest wheel set for one course might not be for another. And there's obviously always a balance to be struck if you're doing uh don't know like uh the outdoors triathlon then uh weight's pretty important for that one whereas if you're doing some of the faster flatter courses whether it's like ironman texas or uh i've forgotten what the flat fast european one is now but either way um you want to be picking aerodynamic wheel sets stability is a big factor that i think a lot of people underestimate but it's hard to quantify i know envy have kind of led the way on that one with their stability index and how they look at the torque generated by a wheel and the separation points. So that's quite 
quite interesting, uh, but very, very hard to quantify, especially uh, without some pretty high-end equipment in a wind tunnel. So uh, what I'd say on that is most wheels are within a sensible window of, unless you have a big budget, I wouldn't go out of my way to spend thousands and thousands of pounds on a top-end wheel set. I think you can get the majority of your performance from a middle-of-the-range wheel set. It's kind of a bit more of that sort of 80-20 rule you get. Okay, uh, so... With wheels, it's a really, really interesting one that a lot of wheel manufacturers now start to look into more of the stability side and Envy have really led the way with their stability index. However, it's not something that's easy to measure without some specialist equipment in the wind tunnel. So I think you can get 80% of the way there for 20% of the effort and looking at sort of middle of the range wheel sets, you'll get a good level of performance and it's unlikely you'll be finding more than a handful of watts between a £5,000 wheel set and a £2,000 wheel set. So I think uh, it's largely been over-egged in marketing. Uh, but yeah, different wheel sets will be quicker on different courses. So if you're riding fast, flat courses, then a disc in the rear and um, probably a, a significantly deeper front wheel is more likely to be quicker. Whereas on some of the more rolling or climbing courses, even like Alp uh, Duez Triathlon, then weight's going to be significantly important. Uh, however, I think things like, um, inertia of wheels has been again, oversold and overmarketed. That's not actually that important. So wheel weight, if it's located at the, uh, extremity of the wheel is only worth about double, uh, weight on the bike. So it's not, not as bad as people have said before. And unless you're braking heavily and accelerating heavily, then inertia and device mass to a certain extent isn't all that important. So don't, don't worry too heavily about it. I think just. Just pick the wheels that, that seem sensible. Unless you've got a massive budget, then you can really get stuck in and could probably go out there and buy all the top wheels, go to the wind tunnel and, and really find out or go to the track and, and test and find out what works for you, really. Um, uh, what was the other thing? Uh, hydration configuration. Yeah, that's a super, super interesting one. Uh, I did a piece for a magazine a couple of years ago on the impact of just a simple 500 mil down tube bottle on a range of different super bikes that was all track tested and some bikes were great with it and some bikes weren't so. So it's it's a hard one to really pinpoint. However, uh, what I would say is being intelligent about what you put in your frame and where you put it is definitely going to find you some improvements. Uh, one thing that I found on a, a huge amount of riders is uh, saddle bottles. Uh, it's incredibly efficient for a lot of riders. It's quite often neutral sometimes even faster on some people so behind the saddle is is a big win uh between the arms has been louder there's a really really aerodynamic pos- uh, position to put your bottle but in practice i've found that not always the case that i've seen some big discrepancies some some losing 10 15 20 watts for a bottle between their arms uh, and obviously it quite limits how narrow you can get the front end if you're very flexible and very slight in your shoulders then being super narrow on your armrests and your extensions can be a huge aerodynamic advantage if you've stuck a 500 mil or even bigger bottle between your arms and that's going to limit the extent that you can uh, really get yourself closed up at the front end so uh it's a hard one on that the other thing to look at is things like camelbacks down the front uh, in the uci they've long since outlawed them you've got to have it on your back but down the front's quite an interesting position um can be quite efficient for some riders some people don't find it enjoyable because it can sort of slosh about and your knees can knock against it, but it's it's quite efficient. It can be quite cooling as well to, to put a camelback down your front, especially for some time trials on hot days. If you can start with the camelback full of either slushy or ice, then yeah, it's quite a nice nice sensation. Keeps your, your core temp low, keeps your perceived temperature quite low, and obviously 
uh, quite easy to hydrate because you've just got this tube running between the top of your skin suit straight into your helmet. So uh, there's different ways of doing it. I think the nutrition side as well, just being smart about where you stick all your gels and, and nutrition. If you can uh, get as many carbs as you can into your bottles and limit how much is, is strapped to your top tube or wherever else you might put it, then your aerodynamics are definitely going to improve. You can get a nice clean bento box, then that's an absolute winner. Uh, and there's a lot of good storage solutions out there, but just being smart, nice clean solutions where lines of the frame join to the box quite cleanly and you're not presenting a big frontal area um, or big sharp leading edges that are forward facing, then uh, yeah, you're definitely going to find some improvements that way. Yeah, that is good advice. What are some um, upgrades or things that uh, might be very oversold you talked about some of the high-end wheel sets already but are there some other things that you see people going out and spending a lot of money on that that you don't think really make a lot of sense unless you have sort of already optimized everything else Hmm, that's a good question i think to most things like ceramic bearings as much as i still embrace them and i definitely do run ceramic bearings i definitely think it's uh, one of the last things you should be going out to buy uh, things like the oversized pulley wheel system. They make an improvement, don't get me wrong. You put it on the pound support scale, it's its definitely uh, probably one of the last 10% of items that should be on your shopping list. So I think ceramic bearings in general are quite frustrating, especially if you can go elsewhere and get a well-manufactured bottom bracket or or a jockey wheel set or even uh, a good quality wheel bearing set. And if you can clean your bearings and dry train pretty well uh, and oil it properly and make sure the seals aren't dragging everywhere then you'll, you'll get most of the way towards top end performance pretty quickly with just your standard steel bearings so i think yeah smoke bearings in some manner do frustrate me and they can wear out prematurely if you don't look after them all that well uh, so that's probably the big one that i see a lot of people spending money on and thinking yeah you you should have gone elsewhere on that and while we're talking about the friction and the dry train, and uh, what what about different uh, lubricants? How how much of a difference does it make to have like a really good one versus more of a generic one? Uh, there's some really good data out there. There's a guy called Jason Smith who set up a website called Friction Facts sort of back in the day. It was uh, probably six, seven, eight years ago now, uh, and he used to sell all his uh, drivetrain data for. It was, so far too cheap i think it was like 30 pounds and you got tens and tens of pdf reports of all the different cogs and chain rings and lubricants and chains and everything that he tested uh and the interesting one is yeah there is a big discrepancy in, in different chain lubes especially once you start to get uh quite a gritty chain so if you get grit in there and it's and it's oily then you can grind away you can wear a chain out quickly and your performance can absolutely drop off a cliff so i i, I think he said or you you could get to something like sort of seven percent uh power loss in your drivetrain or even higher if you you ended up with a really oily gritty chain uh, so things like wet lubes tend to be not all that great dry lubes actually as well uh pretty quickly end up poor because they but you just drop ptfe powder inside the chain then evaporate off so you're ending up with um a light bit of lubricant in there that once it disappears you've got metal on metal and if you get some dirt or dust in there it can end up uh grinding away quite quickly so uh the long and short of it was um paraffin wax to like slack wax based lubricant so squirt lube uh, and then paraffin in general has been used for a lot of different lubricants out there all the wax based stuff is paraffin ceramic speed and uh i think muck off as well as uh, some paraffin derivatives there's a lot of uh stuff mostly based on uh combinations of paraffin wax and a friction modifier like ptfe or molybdenum disulfide tend to be 
right up there as, as the best lubricants. Um, yeah, else quickly you can end up with uh, a lot of energy <laughs> being lost in your chain that's not even made it to the rear wheel yet just because you, you use the wrong lubricant that you picked up at the bike shop. Yeah, well, that, that's that's really useful. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know that it could be that, make that much of a difference. Uh, so, yeah, really interesting to know. And uh, final question, I guess, before we move on to the rapid-fire questions, but can we just summarize things a little bit and uh, give sort of a few bullet points for... Uh, for age group athletes that want to get faster what are the things that they they should be doing and take action on from listening to this episode uh so i think to be inquisitive and objective about everything that they do in their performance so something that i've always tried to push athletes to do is to understand actually what it takes to win how do you win a bike race and how can you break your performance down and improve each aspect of it? So rather than just chasing a big shopping list, be intelligent, look at what you've got, look at what your steps are going forward and what is the most efficient thing for you to do? Is it is it positioning? Is it investing in a load of different wheels or tires or whatever it might be? You've got to objectify all aspects of your performance and then put a number on it, get a pound sport ratio and, and then get stuck into the most efficient things and you'll quite quickly make improvements that way. Um, from a step-by-step perspective so yeah break your performance down look at what you're what you're doing now what others are doing who are ahead of you and especially some some of the pros uh, even more so the ones who don't have heavy sponsorship contracts who tend to perform outrageously well in a specific discipline they're definitely worth looking at um and then yeah start start testing start looking at different things uh if you can use the chung method great it's free it's it's easy to use and uh, I think a lot of people have a bit more time on their hands now. Even more so, if they can get out into the the countryside and they're not completely locked down, then now's a good time to to really do your testing. It's it's relatively safe, it's easy, um, and you can get some really interesting results quite quickly. Um, and never really accept um, where you've got to. Always try to improve. I think is the the final one that you may have found a load of improvements in your position or your equipment, but it doesn't mean you should stand still. You should always keep assessing what how you've got there and what your next steps should be to to keep moving. Mm, yeah that's a really great summary so let's uh, wrap up with the rapid fire questions and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to cycling or endurance sports or just even the technology of it of it all i think my favorite book uh and i keep recommending it to a lot of people is alex hutchinson's endure uh, so the title is the curiously elastic limits of human performance i think it just really got me interested in the physiology side a bit more I'm, i've always been the nerd who loves a spreadsheet so yeah that one uh really tickled me and made me a, a bit more interested in the the energy inside the equation and what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment Ooh, uh i'm gonna go with my srm power meter uh it just gives me a bit of everything not just <laughs> power to go and ride to but it's the source of all my testing data so yeah i love my srm and finally, what's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Uh, personal habit achieve success. I will go with uh, obsessive over details. I think um, sometimes it can really paint you into a corner of uh, being a bit of a perfectionist, but it, I think if you can really obsess then and understand every aspect, then your performance can really improve. 
Perfect. And uh, where can the listeners find out more about you and everything you're doing? We didn't even uh, mention your uh, what, what shop. Is it called what shop or did I? Get yeah, what shop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, please uh, tell us about all of the, the things that you're you're doing so that we can find you. Sure. So uh, myself personally, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Dan Biggles. Uh, I run WhatShop along with my brother. Uh, so we're at WhatShop again, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I'm also the team principal or manager, whatever you want to call it, for Hoob What Bike, which is our track team. So we're at, at Hoob What Bike uh, on again Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and I also ride for Ribble Well Tight. Uh, on the road uh, so we're on instagram twitter and facebook there as well um, i'm always super happy to to talk and answer questions and engage with people so if uh, people want to either see what we're up to and follow us then great if they've got their own questions or queries or um want a bit of guidance then by all means drop into the dms or, or send us a question on twitter or instagram and always happy to help Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been uh, really good talking to you and uh, lots of uh, great advice here. So uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. You can find the show notes as usual on thattriathlonshow.com or go directly to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS229. We will have links to the Who What Bike website and to the WhatsApp website, Dan's business, as well as a link to all the, the previous episodes on the podcast tagged Aerodynamics. So I'll have that both in the show notes and in the episode description in your podcast app. In the next episode of the podcast, or next Monday, I should say, I interview US Olympian and lead running coach Julie Benson who, among other accomplishments, took uh, Jenny Simpson to a World Championship gold medal in the 1500 meters. Uh, so that's an exciting one. And we also talk about uh, a very important topic, in my opinion, which is why are there so few female endurance uh, coaches, and especially at the very high level, at the elite level. So that's an exciting topic. But other than that, we talk a lot about just Julie's general coaching philosophy of course, within the context of running, but many of these uh, aspects, as you know, are kind of transferable between different endurance sports. If you have not uh, listened to the previous episode or the Q&A that I released on Thursday, uh, I have some exciting news, and that is that the beginner Ironman training plan that I've been working on for a long time is uh, finally available. Uh, at the worst possible time when there are no races so that's a bit of a bummer but uh, what can we do nothing we can just try to keep training keep being consistent and uh, be ready for it when the races start up again and the same goes for my creating training plans so the plan can be find, found on scientifictriathlon.com and normally when launching a new plan i have a 60 percent off uh, period of two weeks from the launch of the plan with the situation we're in right now, I have extended that. So it's almost two months rather than two weeks. So lasting all the way through the end of May so that you can have some time to think about it and uh, decide on whether you want to get the plan or not. But uh, I would encourage you that if you know that at some point, whether it's this year or next year, you'll want to use the plan, now is uh, the best time to get it because now is it is 60% cheaper than it will be later on. So check that out on scientifictriathlon.com on the training plans page. 
Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your electrolyte order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, tri suits, swim skins, goggles, high performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving track.